I'm Sarah Ann Minkin, Director of Programs and Partnerships at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. As you can hear in my background, we are now at the turn of the hour. I am so glad and grateful to be joined today by Inez Abdulrazik, Zaha Hassan, and Nadia Hijab. Today's event is entitled Top of Mind, Palestinian Analysts on Unfolding Scenes of Protest and Devastation. We had originally planned to have a discussion today about the exciting new report that Al Shabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network, just published. And Zaha, Nadia, and Inez were going to join us for this discussion. Uh, they co-authored the report along with a scholar named Mona Yunus. As you also know, events have overtaken us. And so instead, we are lucky that Nadia, Inez, and Zaha are joining us today to talk about what is happening now in Gaza, the West Bank, Jerusalem, Israel, and to reflect on how the events of the last few weeks speak to the larger story of Palestinian, Palestinian dispossession, Israeli domination, and the international community's approach to Palestine and Israel. Before we dive in, I want to give a fuller introduction for our guests. Their full bios are available on our website, but so that you know, these wonderful guests we're joined by today, Inez Abdulrazik, Advocacy Director for the Palestine Institute of Public Diplomacy, for Public Diplomacy, PIPD. Prior to joining the PIPD, Inez held advisory positions in the executive offices of the Union for the Mediterranean in Barcelona, the UN Environment Program in Nairobi, and the Palestinian Prime Minister's Office in Ramallah. Zaha Hassan, a human rights lawyer and visiting fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Zaha's research focus, focus is on Palestine-Israel peace, the use of international legal mechanisms by political movements, and US foreign policy in the region. Zaha miraculously published a paper today called Bringing Assistance to Israel in Line with Rights and US Laws. We're going to put a link, offer you the link. Nadia Hijab, co-founder, board president, and former executive director of Al Shabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network, Nadia is co-founder and former co-chair of the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights and now serves on its advisory board. We have so much to discuss, so I'm going to pose questions to individuals, but I welcome and invite each of you to respond to any question you wish, please. Inez, let's start with you. You're joining us from Jerusalem and you've spent time in Sheikh Jarrah over these past few weeks. Would you like to give us an update from the ground, particularly on the situation in Jerusalem and in Gaza? What have the last 28, 40, 40, 24, 48 hours been like for you? Yes, thank you. Um, thank you, Saria. Thank you for FMAP for having us. Um, it is, um, you know, I'm, I'm again, I'm among the privileged. I have a, a safe uh, house uh, where I, you know, I, I can stay. Um, I'm not uh, threatened of eviction and I live, I think, a bit, you know, away from uh, the heart of the violence by the Israeli uh, forces. But it's, um, I think we're all very stressed and very angry and, and, and also sad at the same time. Uh, all these feelings are, are, I think, intertwined. And what's going on is basically every, I would say, um, every night now around Iftar and after, uh, there are clearly, um, you know, there is uh, Palestinian uh, protesters, um, uh, young people uh, who are facing a, a heavy armed 
um, you know, police uh, that is uh, in different areas of the city. So it's not, you know, it's not concentrated in Sheikh Jarrah. Uh, it's not concentrated anymore into Al-Aqsa, but it does spread to also other Palestinian areas, uh, you know, around there like Sarah Hedin and basically that whole area of East Jerusalem. And it's clear that, I mean, what I've, what I've seen and, and, and what we, we know is, is clearly that the police is just there to repress any form of uh, you know, mass gathering or, or forms of popular resistance or, or group resistance. And so that means uh, they don't hesitate to just uh, storm into uh, a crowd uh, with, um, with uh, you know, rubber bullets, uh, with uh, stun grenades and with uh, also skunk water. Uh, you know, I, I left the other day, I had to take almost like two showers uh, and imagine for the people who live there. Um, and so it's it's bad. It's, uh, I think the level of violence is clearly, um, it's, 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 it's just shocking, but it, you know, it's not like people are surprised because Palestinians, they live under, you know, a lower intensity level of violence, I think every day. And it's, I think people have been really uh, amazed to see also the support uh, from the West Bank uh, and uh, cities in 1948, you know, within Israel proper, like Palestinian cities um, and, and Gaza as well. Like, I think even uh, you can see messages of solidarity, even that Gaza is suffering so much. So you can see also the dialogue happening between the people who cannot even meet and, and be with each other. Uh, so I think that's also the uplifting part, uh, which is people that uh, are without leadership and without any, you know, forms of factions behind them or anything are um, really talking to each other and, uh, and being, you know, uh, the Palestinian people overall. Thank you, Inez. We're going to come back to talking about that, that piece. We want to hear more and unpack that more of both leadership and um, Palestinian people across, across geographies um, and borders or, or would-be borders. Um, but, I, but first, since you brought up what's happening inside of 48 and these protests, would anyone like to comment on that in, in particular? I, Netanyahu this morning vowed to restore order with an iron fist in Israeli cities where there have been protests and violence. I think I'll, I could jump in. Thanks, I mean, you know, there's um, there's been such a neglect of the Palestinian communities that are inside Israel, right? And um, there's been such a frustration among the Palestinians there with the lack of um, resources that have been put into this the the communities, the lack of um, budget that they experience because of the discriminatory ways in which Israel allocates um, uh, its budgets. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of concern about the rising violence within Palestinian communities, um, particularly the armed groups that have now um, uh, taken over a lot of the Palestinian communities. So it is quite interesting to see now that finally the um, you know, you, you see the Israeli government having the time and interest to, to uh, you know, go to and attend to Palestinian communities because they are now, those, those firearms are now being pointed at Israeli um, police. And um, these armed groups are now um, becoming activated and resisting the, the Israeli um, uh, 
forces that are in the Palestinian communities. So this is an interesting development to me, um, but it's also really concerning because um, you know we, we, we know that Israel really doesn't distinguish between its own citizens that are of Palestinian descent and those that are, you know, whether in Gaza or in the occupied territories or Jerusalem, Palestinians are Palestinians to the Israeli government and its police units and its military. And so, you know, when you're talking about a situation in which Palestinians um, are, are armed and um, so are the Israeli forces, I think we can expect to see the same disproportionate um, response that we see um, in other cases, like in uh, in particular in Gaza. Um, so I think that's an especially worrying development to me. I mean, what's been really beautiful and amazing about the Jerusalem uh, protests have been the way in which it's been largely nonviolent on the Palestinian side and the way they've been spontaneous in bringing people together whether in communal prayer to, to you know, face off um, uh, you know, Israeli police um, or you know, just in the way the community was caring for each other, whether setting up Ramadan tables you know, in the middle of a street to, as a buffer between you know, Israeli settlers and Sheikh Jarrah or what have you. So I think this, this development inside of um, the Palestinian communities where there are these armed groups is, um, is going to take us to a different level that I think is really unfortunate because I think the conversation is going to change um, a bit uh, as it does when you start seeing, you know, Hamas rocket fire or, um, you know, Palestinians with, with weapons. Thank you for that, Zaha. Nadia, you were nodding. If you want to jump in, feel free. You can unmute yourself or we can, we can wait. Yeah, no, I, uh, thanks very much, uh, Sarah, Anne, and uh, it's, it's really good to be here with, with, with my colleagues. Um, yeah, it, the, there has been uh, amongst Palestinian activists and, and, and human rights advocates uh, some criticism of Hamas uh, for, for launching those attacks, um, you know, uh, and, and sort of sidelining the, the peaceful nature of what was going on in Gaza. But I was struck uh, by, by the fact that there, there is a lot of fear um, that Israel may, may use as an excuse uh, uh, to whatever's going on to blow up the Dome of the Rock, not Israel, but, but um, fanatic uh, settlers um, with, with Israel turning a blind eye. And I, th you know, on, on the Monday, if you remember, um, there, there was a huge push by the Israeli uh, forces to, to get all the Palestinians out of uh, the uh, Haram Sharif area and um, using a lot of uh, tear gas and, 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 and just physically uh, pummeling people out. And then there was a fire and so on. So you, you just never knew, is this the moment that, oh, sorry, uh, a mistake has happened. Uh, and it's, it's been, uh, it's been something that's, you know, been bubbling under the surface and keeps re-emerging. And I, as I was looking back, uh, the the uh, 
the head of the Al-Qaf ministry uh, responsible for Al-Aqsa had warned in January that uh, the, the, of the tightening measures on Palestinians under the pretext of the coronavirus, uh, and, and while at the same time facilitating the raids of settlers. So I think there's a real fear amongst a lot of Palestinians that maybe Al-Aqsa uh, is in danger as it has been on previous occasions when there was actually an attempt back in the 80s to, to uh, blow it up. Thank you for that. Thank you for adding that in. I, I want to, um... As we're, as we're digging in deeper, I want to actually talk about Jerusalem just a, a, a bit more to, um, because the forced displacement of Palestinian families in Sheikh Jarrah and the attacks on Al-Aqsa, and you were just talking about Monday, sparked this current onslaught, uh, sparked where we are now. Um, can, can one of you bring context to these events, to the for our audience to understand that the, the current violence didn't just come out of nowhere. Um, what, it's, what it's relating to, particularly with Jerusalem, and there has been a lot of talk about the concept of the ongoing or the unending Nakba also. I, I can jump in. <laughs> um, you know, you're really correct, Sarah Ann. I mean, you know, for sure the heavy-handed Israeli provocations in and around Al-Aqsa Mosque our key here. I mean, this is the month of Ramadan, a sacred time for Muslims and a place that is sacred to them. Um, it also happens to be home to Palestinians and the city that is their capital. I mean, even among Christians, the provocations are meaningful for what it says about their own security in the city and their own holy places. But Sheikh Jarrah, uh, you know, and the forced displacements really mobilized Palestinians everywhere. In Sheikh Jarrah, you have the entire Palestinian story, you know, narrated. You've got Palestinian refugees from 1948 reliving their forced displacement and trauma all over again. And because it's Ramadan and you have people out on the streets late in the night celebrating this time of year, and because this is Jerusalem and, um, you know, the provocations against the youth that we saw at Bab al-Amu, the uh, Damascus Gate, and at the Haram al-Sharif, this was like the perfect storm to mobilize Palestinians everywhere to action. I mean, there is no Palestinian family that doesn't know about the loss of home and the denial of their identity. This is a lived experience of, you know, even Palestinian citizens of, of Israel, so many of whom were internally displaced themselves in 1948 and lost their homes and property, even though they remained in, inside Israel and became citizens. So. It's an ongoing experience um, for Palestinians facing down Israeli colonization in the West Bank as well. And you know, there's more than 70% uh, of the Palestinians in Gaza are refugees. So that this, you know, this confluence of um, it being Jerusalem, it being Ramadan, and that story, that story of Sheikh Jarrah resonates with every single Palestinian, including those of us living outside, you know, um, in the diaspora. So, you know, it's, it's that that I think was um, different this time than in so many other times where we see, you know, these heavy handed Israeli attacks against Palestinians that of course trouble us all and, and stir us all. But this moment I think was something, was something very different. Say, say more about what was different, Zaha, please. You know, like I said, just because of, you know, there's been a lot of um, 
things that have happened in the last four years in particular, um, you know, with, um, you know, the Trump administration and the, the acceleration in, um, you know, Israeli actions uh, to further, um, you know, colonize the West Bank, to further marginalize Palestinian identity and the Palestinian narrative and Palestinian claims to the land. Um, you're seeing, you know, you're seeing, especially in Jerusalem, uh, acceleration in trying to drive out Palestinian communities and to carve up Jerusalem in a way that would, you know, leave leave the um, Jerusalem Jerusalemites outside. Um, and of course, you're inside of, of Israel proper, or 48 Palestine, as Palestinians will say. Um, you know, you have you you had the Jewish nation state law. Um, you know, enshrined in, in uh, you know, with constitutional authority that basically told Palestinian citizens that they aren't legitimate citizens of, or, you know, on, on the same par as Israeli Jewish citizens. Um, and so all of that in the last four years has been visited upon Palestinians living in historic Palestine. And I think this moment, um, because of, you know, because it being Ramadan, because we're in Jerusalem, because we're talking about Sheikh Jarrah that encapsulates the entire Palestinian experience. Like I said, it was the perfect storm for, you know, folks to become mobilized and impassioned around um, this idea of, you know, enough is enough. Thank you, thank you. Nadia, did you want to add to that? Yeah, just uh, maybe uh, to say and, and uh, Maybe you, you wanted to touch on this uh, perhaps a bit later, but for me, um, the outpouring of the Palestinian narrative has been uh, really uh, striking on this occasion. Uh, so many Palestinian stories have been told, they've been shared uh, on Twitter, they've been shared uh, across the world, and for a change, they've been given voice. So, so they're reaching new audiences and, and new media. And, and uh, as we were saying, uh, 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 earlier that uh, uh, that the the uh, people of Sheikh Jarrah had the youth, especially the youth, are finding ways, uh, very creative ways, I think, to get the stories out. So you have the existing storytellers uh, across in Palestine and across the world about the Palestinian story, and you have a whole new wave uh, of storytellers that are that are being heard to tell the Palestinian story. So I think that's that really has made a significant difference on this occasion. Yes, uh, I can. I can come up here. Come in here. Um, on the last point you made, Nadia, it's, it's very true. I think um, you know we're sometimes we're discussing. You know, revolutions will not be televised, but revolution will happen on social media or not. It's clear that actually it's it's really helped um, just for Palestinians to tell what happens because immediately uh, if a soldier is is or a police is arresting them. If something happens, someone is either live on Instagram or, uh, or you know, uh, sharing on Twitter or on Facebook, and this is hu hugely important. Uh, and 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 you might have followed that, uh, you know, uh, Facebook and Instagram have actually massively censored uh, content, um, and and automatically, obviously, thousands of people uh, also see that, right? So you could also see the reactions, and 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 I think thanks also to 
a lot of great organizing from you know our colleagues in Palestinian civil society like we work all together and you know some that that have worked on also uh, pushing back against that, that censorship because it's, it's it's such an important tool uh, for Palestinians to be heard and also to be heard as individuals and have their stories and their voice heard because if you see in the mainstream media a lot of what's happening always is, you know, you see massive people, you see Palestinians throwing rocks again in kefiyas, and and again, you have that very dehumanizing uh, image that's portrayed to the world, right? The media are only watching when Palestinians are throwing stones, uh, but not when they are telling their own story or, or having iftar together and sharing some memories or something. And I think that's, that, that moment, I think, allowed that too and 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 social media allows that, uh, and I think that that's that's amazing. And um, and and another thing I wanted to say about Jerusalem is, um, you know, it, generally I think everywhere um, it, Israel rules by fear, right? Israel is a is a colonial state. It's a it's a repressive state. It's a it's an occupying force, um, and basically, you know. Two months ago, people were still asking us, oh, but so where, you know, has the Palestinian cause disappeared? And where is Palestine? Where are Palestinians? And and nobody cares anymore, you know? And uh, and sorry, like all these Arab states are, are uh, you know, signing peace accords, uh, normalizing with Israel. So, you know, where where are you? What can you do? And, and I think what people don't realize is that the daily violence of it all is is a constant boiling, uh, you know, it's it's a boiling. I don't know how to say it in English, but it's it's really just a boiling uh, uh, thing all the time that's about to explode because you're talking about people constantly every day, intimidated, repressed, denied their identity, denied, you know, their uh, their their collective identity, and and to be honest, religion there I think plays a big role. I think. It's wrong to say it's a religious uh, conflict. Uh, it's wrong to say it's Jews versus Muslims, and you know we need to really push back against this. But clearly, when you have a you know a, a complete like people feel abandoned. Palestinians have felt abandoned, especially in Jerusalem because there is no Palestinian leadership, and it's and especially also in forty eight because of the national project just transforming. And so people also turn to religion. In, in Jerusalem, religion plays a, a big role. People are religious. And I think this is also because uh, it's, it's a factor of uh, identification, of identity, of, 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 you know, of uh, making sure you can express your identity because you're denied being Palestinian, you're denied being uh, you know, Arab and all this. There is, no, there is no common family anymore because you've been so much broken and fragmented. And so that also crystallizes, I think, a lot of you know, when you touch Al-Aqsa and when you touch uh, Haram al-Sharif, uh, this, this just explodes. So, no. Thank you. Thank you for all of that. So people have been saying lately that um, we've been seeing Palestinian youth so much at the forefront of all of this, both, both on social media and in person on the streets. And one of the things that I have heard is, is people saying that, that the youth have lost their fear or they have no fear. I'm um, speaking to what you were just talking about, Inez. Um, and so I want to, Nadia, you have spoken about, we've, we've, now, we've now talked about this, this 
almost spontaneous eruption, it looks like, of, of protest, of solidarity, of support. Um, but Nadia, you've spoken in particular of the need for leadership. And Inez, you just spoke about the feeling of being abandoned for having no leadership. Um, so let's talk about leadership. Who, who is leading now? What kind of leadership is it? Um, what does this moment say about the Palestinian Authority? And I, we have a, a, a question from a listener asking also for us to comment, for you to comment about the role of the elections and the canceling of the elections and how this plays in at all also. Thank you. Yeah, well, the canceling of the elections, I think, uh, ramped up the frustration and uh, the real frustration and anger that Inez uh, was referring to. People just saw no way out. And uh, what you, you may say that elections under occupation are uh, not as meaningful uh, as they could be, to put it mildly, because you really have no control whatsoever over your freedom of movement or your management of your budget or your resources or so on. But, but people just felt extremely frustrated because they've been stuck with this leadership for decades without uh, any effectiveness. And I think... Um, the, the PLO was extremely effective in bringing the Palestinian people together uh, after the loss of Palestine in the 60s and on and putting Palestine and Palestinians on the world map and regrouping the Palestinian people so that we felt we were a people. But since then, and since the PLO uh, actually lost, in, well, had, was kicked out of Beirut by, by the Israeli invasion of Lebanon, um, it kind of lost its way and then it uh, wanted to do anything to be able to go back to uh, Palestine and, and ha but there it got trapped under the occupation just like the rest of the Palestinians trapped under the occupation. And I think what's really tragic is that um, the, the, the leadership that we've had does not understand sources of power. Um, the, the first Intifada was a huge source of power, a, a peaceful, civil um, a resistance movement that put Palestine on the map. It's, uh, it's uh, easy to forget how impactful it was, how it broke through everything, how everyone saw Palestinians uh, as real people with aspirations and hopes and, and how creative it was. And it was a real source of power. And by the way, it had leadership. It had very strategic, good leadership, but underground leadership as as, need, as it needs to be in a, in a, a place of freedom, in a place you know without freedom, it, it has to be an underground leadership. They did not capitalize on that. Instead, they went the Oslo route. If if maybe one thing will come out of this whole mess that we're in at the moment, this whole uh, disaster, it's maybe it'll finally drive a stake in the heart of negotiations, of bringing both sides back together. Uh, to the negotiating table, which is still being asked for um, by Mahmoud Abbas and, and, and the PA, uh, and without any realization that you cannot uh, rely on the US or to support your position or the Europeans. You have to have your own sources of power. Otherwise, at the negotiating table, um, you're completely wiped out. Um, so I think what's happening here is that there is a, a definitely a lack of national leadership, which is very much needed. And this is something that we uh, uh, as a group uh, uh, focused on. Um, how can we, uh, 
how can we find a way to rebuild national Palestinian leadership? Um, and this is why we came up with the idea that we captured in our study on the, P on the relationship between the PLO and the diplomatic corps. Uh, um, uh, 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 the PLO diplomatic corps and the Palestinian diaspora. And we focused on that to see if it could be an entry point to rebuilding uh, uh, Palestinian leadership or, and, and, and bringing uh, Palestinians back to, uh, with uh, 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 leadership, holding it to account, uh, having a say and a voice in, in how to move forward. And um, that re report was released uh, last week. And uh, I think uh, we're hoping it will contribute, make a contribution to the discussion about leadership and a possible entry point that I don't think anyone has, has focused on previously, where, where the PLO offices are one of the few points where the Palestinian diaspora can actually access uh, the Palestinian national movement and make its voice heard. Um, so so that's, uh, that's one thing we've done because without effective leadership, we can't take all this energy and make it meaningful and impact on the forces that are preventing us from realizing our rights, uh, whether it's the Israeli forces, whether it's their American uh, uh, supporters or their European enablers, you, you know, we have to break through all of that. And without leadership, ultimately, I don't think we can do that. So this report is one um, small contribution to what an entry point back to leadership could look like. Thank you. Thank you for that and for the, this, the, the longer term view that you just offered us. And, and um, we look forward to having a conversation about the report and about those, the, your, your analysis and your recommendations um, at another moment. But here, here we are now in, a, in, in the absence of the national leadership that you just spoke of. It, it, it seems that Hamas is taking advantage of that political space. Um, and so I wanted to ask about how Hamas figures into this question of, of who speaks for Palestinians and what leadership looks like, uh, the dynamic between or the role, the relationship between the PA and Hamas, um, and also how Palestinians are responding to Hamas, Hamas's actions and choices uh, right now. Inez, would you weigh in for us, please? Um. I think your analysis is correct. I think um, clearly the, um, so obviously, you know, the, just, just to go back a little, the elections were postponed, uh, most probably because of uh, the internal divisions within the Fatah movement. Uh, and they used Jerusalem as, as, as an excuse. Um, you know, I think uh, no one denies that, obviously there cannot be elections without Jerusalem. No Palestinians would allow elections without Jerusalem. However, uh, the leadership didn't fight at all. They basically uh, capitulated. They just like gave in, uh, uh, you know, the Israel refusal, which we all know Israel will never officially agree for Palestinians to have elections in Jerusalem. Right, I'm going to interrupt and, you for one one quick second. When you say the leadership didn't didn't push back and just capitulated, you, do you mean the PA? The the PA the yeah. So uh, let's say the the Fatah dominated PA. Because eventually, uh, I think the PA is composed today mainly, and the PLO leadership of, of mainly Fatah people, people who are loyal to, to the president, Mohammed Abbas. 
and 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 right now you can you could see with the popular movement that again that leadership was silent absent um didn't do anything uh they actually allowed um demonstrations in Ramadan only saying only they would only accept demonstrations related to Jerusalem uh, because obviously you had the demonstrations that were linking the two, right? That it was also organized by some of the, the movements and the and the people who were going to go to the elections and and organized, you know, to march in the street in solidarity with Jerusalem. Uh, the PA was, you know, afraid that they would be actually anti-PA um, uh, demonstrations, uh, which there was probably a bit of that. And yesterday they blocked a march to, you know, um, uh, on Jerusalem just to make sure it didn't. So again, with that idea that there is security coordination with Israel that is very uh, obvious and I think criticized by a lot of the Palestinians who sees that the PA is effectively enforcing uh, basically Israel's occupation instead of confronting it. And so in that space, obviously the boulevard is open for Hamas who was not really interested either in elections, to be honest. They were uh, also interested in just having this form of sharing power sharing with with Fatah and kind of having these elections to consolidate a power sharing and but now with with spontaneous you know um, um, demonstrations happening and, and protests it's in their advantage to hijack that too uh, and and I think for the Palestinians you know they eventually most Palestinians uh, they support uh, resistance against the occupation and I think the conversation should not be about what choice, of resistance that is, but rather what are the root causes of that resistance? Like why are Palestinians feel the need to resist? And then, because if you if you look, if you just focus on, okay, so what are the tools like, oh, Hamas is doing it's bad or Fatah is doing it's bad and, you know, don't go that route. Palestinians will keep being patronized uh, instead of actually, you know, the, the international community and, and, and Israel being pressured to just simply end settler colonialism and, and occupation. And I think, and I think we're, we're in that moment. And I think that the Palestinians, uh, they're not naive, um, but they're clearly, again, the, these protests, they're not organized. They're organized by grassroots movements, by people who are, you know, just, uh, it, it, will, it be, will it be hijacked by factions? Who knows? We, we don't know that yet. Um, but it's clear that I think um, the the absence of Palestinian leadership plays a big role. I would oh, I would, however, just downplay the role that the elections uh, ca cancellation played because, for example, in Jerusalem, uh, people couldn't care less about the elections, or at least they didn't feel concerned because the PA hasn't been there forever. It, it has never been there. The PLO was there, uh, but then you know was repressed and and, and had to go. And eventually they've been under Israeli control, under an Israeli municipality, they pay tax to, to Israel, they learn Hebrew in school and they have to live under Israeli ruling effectively. And so for them, PA elections felt something very, that was not for them, that was not made for them. And, and so I think that that is important because I don't think that played a big role in, in, in them um, you know, uprising. And, and I'll end by, by actually, because you said like breaking the barrier of fear, that was how I wanted to conclude my earlier point and, and I forgot, but indeed, I think what's so interesting is, um, 
is that is is any in anywhere in the world you can see when there is some form of uprising or revolutionary movement it's because there is some form of the barrier of fear is falling and and the, the, again the israeli regime is made to make Palestinians be fearful all the time of uh you know losing their residency losing their home uh, uh you know being uh, being called to be an informant and having your social life ruined or um you know being being killed uh, being put into prison so all of this is you know made to basically just break any form of of uh of of uh, uprising i just would add a footnote to what ines said so beautifully <laughs> Um, this whole, this whole idea that um, you know this could get away from the the PA, you know this um, these protests. You know initially the the Fatah led PA was quite supportive of Palestinians going out and protesting. I mean they they were telling you know their Fatah cadres to go out and and to protest um, on Jerusalem, um, and they allowed they allowed the protests to go forward even though you know there would be um you know engagement between the israeli uh, military and the protesters um and this is probably you know not only because you know we're talking about jerusalem but also because this uh, palestinian authority has been very frustrated by the lukewarm uh response it's getting from the administration on the issues of you know peacemaking um, and so this was an opportunity to to assert some relevancy uh, and to, you know, bump up Palestine on the U.S. agenda a bit more, um, but there is it definitely is concern, I think, among the PA about the things getting out of hand, and that's why yesterday it was interesting to listen to the um, press briefing in the State Department because I think I think there was a little bit of a slip by um, the uh, spokesperson who who let who let out that um you know the u.s asked abu mazen to um to you know clamp down on aid celebrations to cancel aid celebrations and he said okay so you know because um you know we heard yesterday that you know uh, abu mazen had announced that he was going to um you know uh uh, call off, you know, eight, uh, the aid celebrations, but it was the, the context for that was that, you know, because of all of the, you know, the loss of life and the, you know, difficulties on the ground uh, around, uh, you know, the, the current violence, that was the reason for, for him wanting to cancel any kind of aid celebrations. But then we heard yesterday, now it was the U.S. asking asking him to, to do so. So, so I think that this is an issue that we're going to see moving forward because I don't believe that there's going to be an end to the Gaza bombardment anytime soon. And the pressure is going to grow on the Palestinian Authority in terms of, you know, where are they on all of this? Are they still trying to present themselves as the, you know, the, the good peace partner for the U.S.? Or are they going to prioritize their own people and start thinking about strategies and, and ways in which you know they can empower their people and and continue to resist uh, Israeli colonization and oppression. Thank you, Zaha. Thank you for all of that. I, I we're going to come back to talking about strategies and potential strategies um, 
in a moment, I actually want to stick with you, Zaha, and ask you more about DC since you brought up the State Department and um, and pressure that they're putting on on Mahmoud Abbas until the the Damascus Gate protest and and even until more recently, I think yesterday there were like I think I saw at least five different articles all saying that uh, there's new pressure on 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 Biden because the Biden team was seeming to stay as far away as they could from uh, Israel-Palestine and from engaging with Palestinians. Do you think that the, the Biden administration, um, do you think that they might change their approach now that it looks like this bombardment could continue? Do you think that they will engage in a different way? I mean, you know, definitely Israel-Palestine has a way of forcing itself on administrations that, that really would prefer perhaps not to have to deal with it. But you know, I just want to note that, you know, this administration from the get-go has said, you know, we are just so busy. We're just so busy with all the other things we have to do domestically and, you know, and, and we have other priorities in the Middle East. And for sure, the administration does. But what administration doesn't have a million and one things to do? And to think that this administration, you know, can't walk and chew gum at the same time is really, you know, hard to fathom, especially since, it's finding a lot of time to pursue Arab normalization with Israel. I mean, it's finding a lot of time to pursue uh, increased security uh, coordination and sharing of security and technology with Israel. It's finding a whole lot of time um, for all the myriad ways in which it supports and uplifts Israel, um, you know, d domestically as well as, um, you know, in the in the region. So to say that there's this administration just didn't have time and couldn't invest any more of its resources um, as it continues to supply, you know, $3.8 billion a year to Israel is, is really hard to believe. So I think a lot of this was really overplayed, you know, by the administration that, oh, we just don't have time, you know. And so now, you know, the issue is front and center and um, it's front and center uh, you know, obviously, because we have this close relationship with with Israel, and we care about what happens to Israel. Um, but it's also front and center because this administration in particular has said that values is a centerpiece of its foreign policy. And, and it's said that it wants to reassert itself as a global leader and, um, you know, restore respect for multilateral institutions and, um, and the legal order. And, um, and this challenge of Palestine is, is, is going to hamper all those efforts because, you know, there is no starker example of the complete disregard of international law and, you know, international institutions than Palestine. And there's no starker example of U.S. hypocrisy in this regard than Palestine. So I think that um, this is gonna be a real difficult one for the administration to ignore. It's gonna to have to bump up on their priority level, but I think what we're gonna end up seeing is you're gonna end up seeing an, an administration that's doing a lot of behind the scenes with Israel. And I think that's happening right now. Um, we're not seeing sort of the, the full blown you know, takedown of Israeli leaders um, because, you know, the U.S. does want to engage on Iran, um, doesn't want to pick a fight with Israel publicly on this particular issue at this critical moment when they're working that, working on the Iran front. So you, you're going to, you're going to see them doing this very quietly behind the scenes. Similarly with the Palestinians, there's going to be a lot of, you know, behind the scenes 
you know, be good, do this, do that. Um, don't, don't make too many waves. Um, and, and that's going to be what, um, what takes place on the leadership level. But that's not going to necessarily have an impact on what's going on with Palestinians on the ground. Um, I think that the situation inside Israel, the um, situation in the occupied territories, and in particular in Gaza, are going to um, not make it so easy for the U.S. to 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 do this um, sort of um, you know quiet diplomacy that um, they would like to in order to not have to engage more fully. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Ines. Yeah, I wanted to to add, and I saw a question also in the Q and A. Um, I think what's remarkable is the evolution that we're seeing. And, and I sometimes I don't know if because it's because I'm in the media space now and I wasn't maybe a few years back. But clearly, I think what's most important these days is the change in narrative. I think the, the, the most important change we need to push for is clearly for uh, the international community. And that starts, you know, in the narrative and the discourse. Um, really reconnecting um, the way they analyze the situation with what's going on on the ground in the reality. And I think right now what we see is, is still, you know, this, um, this, this idea, this narrative around this is a both sides issue and there is two parties and it's, this is a conflict between two parties that should just, you know, um, go around the table and negotiate and basically uh, arrange, a, a, you know, a, a different interests they have. Um, and, and that is so completely obviously disconnected from the reality. And I think this is changing because obviously when you have Human Rights Watch, you know, saying that Israel is committing the crime of apartheid, when you have so many Palestinians going on social media and showing, when you have cases like Shasharah of obvious dispossession and, and illegal displacement being on the forefront and showcasing being a symbol of all the dispossession that has been happening. When you also see the Palestinian people coming together, suddenly it's not West Bank Gaza, you know? It, no, it's actually Palestinian people are also all across historic Palestine. And I think breaking those lines and kind of getting really that this is a settler colonial problem. Uh, and this is what we eventually we need to, to resolve, uh, including the right of return, right? That had also disappeared completely from the narrative. Um, all of this I think is, is slowly happening and so I think there is a silver lining there. I'm not saying it's mainstream, it's clearly not. Uh, but it, when you see Congress people, when you see uh, celebrities, influencers, when you see, you know, in the Democratic Party, people pushing the, also the Biden administration to, uh, you know, push in that direction, it makes it more and more difficult to ignore the reality. And I think this is what we need to push for because until we're talking about the peace process and negotiations and, and you know, both sides' responsibilities, uh, we're not moving forward. This will only embolden uh, Israel's impunity and, and it will just only allow them to continue what they've been doing and, and, and how they've been basically maintaining this, uh, you know, this, this uh, low intensity violence and this dispossession uh, all across uh, Gaza, West Bank, Jerusalem and inside Israel. And so I think this is really uh, key and, and, and um, you know, I'm, I'm fairly optimistic, let's say in some ways that we can continue pushing in that, in the right direction. Thank you. Thank you for that. So will you um, 
talk to us about what that pushing can look like, like what the shifting of this narrative, what would it look like to, to internationalize this, this cause of the, the global movement for Palestinian rights, to have an international strategy? Well, I mean, as we discussed before, I think until until the PA and the PLO don't change strategies, uh, I think we'll we'll will somehow eventually, um, you know, hit a wall at some point. I think what what clearly is needed, um, because obviously the international community is, is really important, and I think continue to you know um, ask for ending military funding to Israel and. And you know, condition any aid or cooperation in, in changing the relationship with Israel is so important. Also, to allow Palestinian society to renew its political leadership, I think that you know this is not disconnected. However, clearly, I think uh, as we Palestinians see that the utmost priority right now is also to renew our, our, our national movement. And I think we we don't even know what that means. Some people, you can see actually, everyone now really coming together and, and seeing the, the protests and the uprisings. But in, in all those people, you don't have, you know, you have uh, thousands of different opinions. You had some people want one state, some people want two states, some people, they want the renewal of the PLO. Some people want something else than the PLO. Uh, I don't think people know. I just think that uh, that needs to happen. That needs to be a renewal in leadership and clearly Everyone feels that the Oslo regime and all of the everything around the Middle East peace process is is dead. It's to be put behind, and, and I think that's that's a consensus that clearly the leadership, uh, the, the current leadership, is not ready to take. And as you said, and, and and I think this is this is this is very key. And the internationalization is clearly has been shaping uh, over the past years and will continue to do so in, in the contemporary world we live in. People. Uh, they are uprising against autocratic states, against cyber civilians, against uh, you know militarized states, against ethno-nationalism and racism. And I think obviously we want to re-universalize also um, uh, what's going on in, in, in Palestine or de-exceptionalize Israel, I think is, is another way of saying it. Uh, because that's, that's really just, it's beyond just Israel-Palestine. Like what we're seeing here is, is you know, are you pro uh, justice and freedom and, and equality? And I think this resonates. And I think it's obviously different from what the PLO had been fighting around in, you know, in the in, in the world where decolonial movements were really uh, powerful and shaping. And, and this was, you know, allies that they have. And today we're here and we're still in this colonial reality. And and but, but the world has changed and the 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 you know, the solidarity and I think what, what resonates with people and the struggles have, have evolved. And I think this is where, you know, Palestine is, I think, creating its international solidarity with. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, Nadia, will you weigh in? Okay. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I wanted to, uh, to say that for me, the biggest danger is that the U.S. could could try to intervene <laughs> or try to do something because I don't think they have any creative ideas. It's it's probably more important for them to put pressure on Israel behind the scenes than to try and and uh, 
and move uh, forward any kind of uh, negotiations or peace deal or whatever, because we'll just find ourselves going back to square one, where here's these both sides and they have to make concessions. And uh, the, the, the Palestinians have, uh, you know, bent over backwards to make any number of concessions and all that's happened in Israel has swallowed up uh, more and more territory and got stronger and stronger. And so I think we have some, some time to go before. Uh, and also, I don't think we can get rid of um, the Oslo framework so easily and quickly because a lot of people depend on it for their livelihoods. And so that's, that's a real fear. So um, of course, uh, uh, Palestinian youth and, and, and activists and so on are pushing to, to change that. But the reality is that people still need to, to live. People still need to survive. You still need UNRWA. You still need the, the, um, the tragically, you still need, you know, the, the Oslo, uh, that piece of the Oslo Accords that uh, will allow money to, uh, to reach people and have that kind of quasi uh, government. But what we, I think we will have, what we will see coming out of this is something that's happened every single time Israel has uh, attacked Gaza. Um, and I say Israel has attacked Gaza because it's, uh, its uh, firepower is so much uh, greater than anything uh, uh, Gaza or, or, or Hamas could do. And it just pulverizes uh, the people in the countries and, and, and the, the, uh, the disproportionate uh, level of, of firepower, I think is extremely visible to people around the world. And so every time Israel has, uh, there's been an outbreak between Israel and Gaza, um, the, uh, that's grown the movement for Palestinian rights exponentially. So after each uh, assault on Gaza, the, the movement for Palestinian rights has, has grown hugely. And now you have a very strong movement for Palestinian rights uh, across, across the world, um, including among, among Jews um, and especially amongst American Jews. Um, and, and for me, I, I hold a lot of uh, hope for the growth of understanding and, and power of American Jews uh, getting behind a human rights framework um, and, and uh, pushing for uh, 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 an end to apartheid and equal rights. And I think that's happening uh, very quickly now. The, the discourse is, is shifting very, very rapidly. Uh, you look how long it took to get the word apartheid in the discourse from having a a few activists say so about 20, 25 years ago to it growing slowly, slowly, but extremely slowly. And then suddenly in the space of four years, you have three or four major reports, you know, topped by the Human Rights Watch report, uh, really uh, describing this extremely clearly and categorically as a situation of apartheid. And I think that's having um, a big impact on, on the movement for Palestinian rights and giving clarity, giving clarity for the direction and, and how to move forward. So, and maybe putting an end to that sterile, sterile debate of whether it should be one state or two states, you know, uh, and focusing on, um, I think the rights for all. So I think this is the time when we will see the movement, the global movement for Palestinian rights really grow in strength. You have something like 50 um, groups in the US uh, all coming together now to push 
uh, uh, Congress to push the administration to, to take action. It's, it's really quite a, an impressive and growing movement. And this is some of this is even happening in Europe and even here in Britain where it's extremely stifled, you can see um, uh, things getting organized and including young British Jews getting organized. Thank you. I just wanted to clarify just a point because I think when I say getting rid of, of Oslo it doesn't necessarily mean uh, getting rid of the PA or disrupting the PA because I, I, I totally agree with you Nadia that I think this is unrealistic and I don't think that's what people want uh, but I think getting rid of Oslo means getting rid of, of the framing around the peace process and the dynamics of dependency uh, all these mechanisms and these things that are actually making the PA so dependent on Israel and, and every single step that they need to do is, is with the accord of, of, of the agreement of Israel. And so I think we, we, we should rethink just what is our self-government. If it's the PA has obviously its infrastructure, its structure, and, and, and you know a lot of people depend on its services. I don't think that includes UNRWA because UNRWA was living much before uh, you know, Oslo. Um, but the PA, uh, I think, you know, we need to rethink what that self-government is for and is about. Uh, because again, it doesn't represent Palestinians for a political solution, but it does provide services. So, but it does provide services within a framework that is making them completely dependent on just Israel decision-making on everything. Uh, and so, you know, we could keep a form of self-government administration, call it the PA, you know, uh, but in a different, I think, uh, paradigm. I think that's that's more what I meant. Thank you for that clarification. And, and this is a reminder that um, we're going to have you back to have a longer, deeper discussion about the PA and the PLO and, and future possibilities based on the, the research that you did. And I really look forward to that, to that discussion when, when the time is right. Um, but here we are now in, in these days of, um, of immense violence and we're coming up on, on the hour um, and I know that you are each so busy and, and, and fully engaged with what is happening now. And so I don't wanna to take too much more of your time. I want to ask you please to, to close us out. Um, tell our audience, what do you want to ask of our audience? What are the most important things that people can do from afar at this moment? We always, always get asked that question every time we have guests and now more urgently than ever. So please, if you would each answer that question. Zaha, let's start with you. You know, I feel like there's so much to, um, to capture the imagination of, of Americans right now. There's so much going on. There's, you know, of course, we're still in the midst of a pandemic. We're, we're in the midst of trying to begin to think about a recovery from all of the um, economic challenges that Americans have faced. Um, and there's all these other global issues, right? That um, that are of concern to Americans. Um, so I think it's really hard to um, to to talk about Palestine, knowing knowing that there are all of these other um, you know ways in which Americans are pulled. But I think in in the case of Palestine, the thing I would ask people is, you know, because it's we are so implicated, we are so implicated in every everything that's happening there, whether it's the weapons that are being used, whether it's the um, the way it impacts us domestically in terms of what kinds of civil liberties we can expect to have as as Americans um, when uh, Israel is a topic of conversation. Um, and whether it's the way you know social media platforms try to censor and control 
um, the, the debate and discussion, I would just ask people to really um, take the time to, to educate yourselves. And I mean, you're here listening to us. So obviously this, this um, uh, I'm, I'm talking to believers here, but I mean, it's really difficult to get um, good and accurate information um, if you rely on mainstream, you know, cable news networks or those kinds of things. So I would really encourage that and, and share with friends, really share with your friends what you're learning. Thank you, Zaha. Nadia? Yeah, I would say um, there's a strong civil society movement uh, in the US and overseas that is really pushing for Palestinian rights. So please support it. Uh, in, in every way you can, amplify its voices. Uh, uh, these organizations need funding. Um, so I would, I would urge that uh, you support and fund that. And then front and center Palestinian voices. And as I said, push for them to get heard in the media. Don't let them get away with silencing Palestinian voices. They're, they've broken through now because of what's going on on the ground and that will always happen but then they get silenced again so i would ask that you know please stop from our being silenced thank you nadia yes inez please really agree on that and so my only additional point will be please do uh, organize to vote and elect progressive people or people who believe in justice and values of justice freedom rights domestically and abroad. So, you know, uh, I think when you're a coherent politician, you do believe in, in I think, uh, a medical, uh, you know, health, right to health for all, but also to also, you know, not to fund uh, the Israeli military or any uh, human rights abusers. So definitely that's, that's so important because we've seen also how that, that has made evolve um, US policies. Um, yeah, and, and for sure what Zaha and Nadia said as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to the three of you, Zaha, Nadia, and Inez, so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, thank you to everyone who joined us for this event, to listen to this event. We are so glad to share this conversation with you. Please check back at the FMEP website, www.fmep.org for the recording of this conversation, for a list of resources relating to the conversation, and for announcements of upcoming events, webinars, and podcasts. Thank you all so much. Until next time, thank you.